1: You're listening to the Tudors Dynasty podcast with Rebecca Larson. Welcome back to the show. I'm so happy to be here with you again. If you're new to the show, I'm Rebecca Larson, founder and host of the Tudors Dynasty podcast. And if you're a return guest, thank you so much for coming back for more History Talk. Since my summer break began in June, my amazing team, including Steph Store, Heather Darcy, and Christine Morgan, have been keeping you entertained with Ask the Expert, Hands on History, and a brief history episodes. In addition to that, Christine has even been doing recap and review episodes for Becoming Elizabeth. And let me tell you, people have really been enjoying those as well. Joining my dream team this summer is Lacey Bonar-Hall. Lacey's been doing a mini-series for the show called Rumors and Gossip at Tudor Court, and she has uncovered rumors and gossip surrounding Mary Anne, and George Boleyn, as well as Queen Elizabeth I. Now, coming up next in the Rumors and Gossip series is The Princes in the Tower. So, you guys, I know you always love that topic. So, stay tuned for that episode in August. But today, since Becoming Elizabeth had the week off, Christine and I decided to revisit an episode from the show's 2019 archives. While it's been some time since this episode first aired, the drama surrounding the Boleyn sisters has not changed. Take a listen to historian Christine Morgan and I chat about two women who have captivated our imaginations for centuries, the Sisters Boleyn.
0: Christine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk about this with you today. Well, I know that you're a
1: huge fan of both Anne and Mary Boleyn. So what is it about each sister that attracts you to them? And who is your favorite, if you can pick one?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I can definitely pick one. I think that for me, the Boleyn sisters, my interest in them um, is kind of it marks different points in my life as a historian i think we all start with anne uh the tragedy the love story the the sweeping drama of it all followed by this really swift downfall that no one could really quite explain and then um you know as soon as you start reading more about anne you see that there are different characters intertwined in her life who may have also been present at various points in her in her demise And so I think for me, uh, I started with Anne Boleyn because it was sort of a mystery, a drama mystery. And then I switched into Mary, which I am drawn to her for different reasons. Of course, I think I'm drawn to her because no one really talks about her. And that's more so the reason I like to talk about Mary, because, you know, I think she has a really interesting story that people are still trying to figure out with Anne, we are drawn to her because of the sheer drama of it all. So I think my favorite is probably Mary. That's what I based a lot of my thesis work in grad school on. But gosh, you can't go wrong with either, right?
1: Well, exactly. Both of them are just amazing to to think about what kind of life that they had. You know. Anne's, I think Anne's execution is definitely what draws people to her the most. Mm. And I feel like for me, it's Mary Boleyn's um, independence and and finding love. You know, that's what draws me to her.
0: Mm. That is such a big part of her story. I think that both Boleyn's, both Boleyn women did that really well. We know Anne had a secret engagement before and then we know Mary eventually will elope. So I think both of these women show quite a lot of agency in terms of picking who they want to marry and who they want to be with. And it always ruffles some feathers, right? Oh, it totally
1: does. You, you're, you can always be up for a good debate when it comes to the Boleyn sisters.
0: And there's so much to talk about too. So um, I'm really, really excited to be here and kind of talking about their intertwining stories on this really um, rather sad anniversary of her execution. But there's a lot of good stuff that happens before this moment. So I'm I'm happy to be here. Well,
1: when it comes to the Berlin sisters, um, I think most people know that we don't really know about their dates of birth, do we?
0: Oh, this is such a good debate. (laughs) Um, There are even some really great uh, older historians who were going at it, you know, going for the jugular over this debate, you know, 10, 20 years ago. So it's been raging and raging. Uh, I think the only thing that we can say for certain is the order of birth, which would be Mary, then George, then Anne. Uh, So in terms of who's oldest to who's youngest. But when we start talking dates, you know, it's really difficult because England didn't really require, you know, birth, marriage, baptism records until the 1530s. So if they exist before the 1530s, it's sheer luck. And we just don't have those records for the Boleyn children. And when it comes to Anne, they
1: usually focus on either 1501 or 1507,
0: correct? Mm, Yeah, they usually do. And there are great arguments for both. I think a lot of it ends up being you have to look at where she is at different points in her life and whether or not it makes sense for a seven-year-old to be in Austria in 1513, or if it makes more sense for a 13-year-old to be in Austria in 1513. So I think for me, probably there's a happy medium, We also know that there's some interesting ways of dating. The calendar back then was a little bit different. So some dates are are a little bit off, but, you know, I don't know if it's 1501 or 1507. So let's split the difference and go like 1505. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> there you go. We'll make it make it fair for everybody, just right in the middle.
0: Can <laughs> yeah, we all just agree? <laughs> you know, I
1: feel like I tend to lean towards the earlier one, just like you said, because of the age. It seems more plausible to me for her to be thirteen, but mm. we'll, you know, we don't know for certain.
0: Yeah, we don't know for certain. There have been really good arguments about, you know, her writing skills, her French skills. I think the letter that people like to focus on in terms of trying to find her age is a letter she wrote to her father in French. It sounds like maybe the language of a child, but the skill is that of someone who's a little bit older. So yeah, it could go either way. I think I agree with you, though. I like the earlier dating I find it hard to believe that she would have been executed before she was thirty. It's it's a
1: fascinating conversation. I think <laughs> it'll one that will it will last forever.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know,
1: I know. So you mentioned Anne's time in Austria, and we do know that both Mary and Anne spent time at French courts, and that's where Mary picked up that awful nickname um, from King Francis, didn't she?
0: <laughs> yeah the uh, the English mare incident. You know, I actually think that it's difficult to determine which sister he's actually referring to there. And it's been depicted in a couple of different ways. But I think the crux of the matter is when we find out that those nicknames have been given, it's usually after the fact. And it's usually being said by someone who is Catholic. So we kind of have to look at those with a little bit of salt because it's propaganda at the end of the day yeah uh, most definitely yeah so um in terms of the things that were said about Anne and or mary by francis the first we usually don't get documentation about that until at least with mary until 1536 so almost you know 15 years after she's been gone so how could we possibly you put that on her as a truth you know
1: yeah. And, and it's kind of the same thing that happened with Anne of Cleves.
0: Yeah. Oh, and I love Anne of Cleves. So too. she gets a really bad reputation for having been ugly. I don't think she really was. I think she actually offended Henry VIII and he got mad and that was, you know, his go-to.
1: <laughs> right, right. I'm currently reading Heather Darcy's um, nonfiction book oh, on good. Anne F. Cleves and it is an eye-opener. A lot of the stuff that we have learned over the years turns out to be either misunderstood or actually incorrect. Mm-hmm. And, and so that to me is fascinating that we can kind of see what the truth really is Hundreds of years later, it's kind of exciting.
0: It absolutely is. But it's a little bit heartbreaking, too, to think that the way that we think about these women, uh, any of them, any of his wives, any of his mistresses, so on and so forth, we kind of have to piece together this perspective of these women based on men who are writing about them, either in anger or for propaganda purposes or whatever it is. Uh, We very rarely see their voice anywhere. So we have to do a lot of of legwork as historians.
1: Exactly. Now, we're talking about Mary and Anne, and I know that on the 4th of March, 1522, both Mary and Anne had parts in the Chateau Vert pageant. Mary played kindness, Anne played perseverance. When did Mary and Anne each return to English court?
0: I think at this point... Uh, They're both there for Mary. People think that she didn't arrive until 1520, you know, just in time for her wedding to William Carey. But when you look at the records, there's actually mention of two Bullen ladies having breakfast at court in November of 1519. So my assumption is that Mary has returned from France and is at court with her mother at least by November of 1519, with Anne, we know she's in this 1522 pageant. Then she is secretly engaged to Henry Percy in 1523, 1524. Woolsey says we're not going to let you get married, uh, and she's sent to Hever. So I think she's at English court in 1522, but then it's really not until 1526 that we see her having, um, being pursued, excuse me, by Henry VIII.
1: Now, after Mary's return to English court, did it take very long before she started to, to sleep with King Henry?
0: <laughs> this is a great question. I so we know she's there in 1519. William Carey has just been elevated to Knight of the Body. So it's a great match for her. Um, and he's related to the king. So it's her marrying into the royal family in 1520. But she doesn't appear in this pageant um, until 1522. But when she does, she plays a really a rather prominent role. So my assumption is that we can at least mark March of 1522 as the relationship is either about to start or has has maybe just started. So uh, about 2 years. Oh wow. Okay. I wouldn't give it more than that, but certainly she's got 2 years of marriage before she appears in this pageant.
1: Interesting, because one of the questions or, I guess, debates that have gone on probably for centuries is that Mary Boleyn's children by William Carey, Catherine and Henry Carey were actually the children of Henry VIII.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, this is such a fun one. It makes a lot of sense, too, when you think about it. If she had started her affair with Henry VIII any earlier, 1520, some people have suggested she's already having an affair by the time she gets married. Um which I think is, is impossible. Um, <laughs> if we put her as having a, an affair in 1520, Henry's attention span is, is way too short for him to have had, you know, just a, a regular affair for five years and That's kind it. of, you know, changes the rules there. So, I think for mary fifteen twenty two is a good starting place, and then there are children in fifteen twenty four and fifteen twenty six I believe um after which time I believe their their relationship ends, and he switches over to pursuing Anne How uncomfortable would that have been? <laughs> I think about that all the time oh, so uncomfortable. The only thing that kind of gives me a little bit of comfort in in this particular, you know, going from one sister to the next is that we know Henry is sort of a serial monogamist. So he's not just sort of, you know. Uh, use and then lose them. He's gonna he spends several years with Mary, and then he actually gives her and her children some displays of favor and attention for the remainder of Mary's life. So he doesn't just you know drop her like a hot potato. He he sticks with her and he advocates for her, and he gives her children places at court. And of course, all of those things point to him maybe being the father of one or both of her children.
1: Well, then that leads me to putting you on the spot here. Do you think both Catherine and Henry were his children or one or the other?
0: I think most likely Catherine would have been the daughter of Henry VIII. I don't think Henry is. Of course, it's possible. But when again, when we look at the records of the people who are saying that Henry is the son of the king, there those are things that are said in propaganda or things that are said you know, in a in a speech right before someone is executed. They're said for drama. And so I think that actually makes it less credible. Obviously, Henry gets a lot of favor from Elizabeth I, which he would as her cousin. Um, and the two of them grew up together and were educated together. But Catherine is really interesting because as a girl, there's really no need for things like guardianship or good education or um placing her at the at um Anne of Cleves court which all happened so why is Henry VIII putting his niece in his new wife's court when she's the niece of someone that he executed so i think that that's kind of tricky but i think Catherine is the most likely to have been Henry's daughter.
1: I love it. I, it it's, it's the constant debate, isn't it? And we'll never know for sure one way or another, but we love to talk about it.
0: I know. My big thing is, you know, as a historian, I can't just run around asking people to exhume bodies, but uh, I wish I could. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, and I just learned something um, yesterday, a fun little fact that The current royals, let's say Prince William, the Duke of Cambridge, and Prince Henry, Duke of Sussex, Hmm. they descend from Catherine Carey and her brother, Henry Carey.
0: Yeah, which makes them, of course, descendants of Mary Boleyn. And I love that. Yes, that's really, really exciting. Wouldn't it be fun to think that eventually the Boleyns ended up in the royal family Um, And and the Tudor line is still in there somewhere. Wouldn't that just be so fun? And of course, we have a redheaded Harry um, and his wedding anniversary is the same day as Anne Boleyn's execution. So it would just be full circle. Wouldn't that be great? It
1: would. And I, I just love that they're descendants of Mary. You know, it's it seems like poetic justice in the end.
0: I know we get this, we get this constant, you know, she's the other Boleyn girl. She's the one that wasn't as important, but, oh, I'd have to disagree.
1: I think I'm right there with you now.
0: (laughs) So now we know
1: in 1528, the sweating sickness was huge in England. Many people died from it. Anne Boleyn happened to survive it. Uh, Others, unfortunately, were not so lucky. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
0: Yes, this outbreak of the plague, you know, it happens every once in a while. I you know, we can't really explain it. We obviously know that there's um, you know, health and cleanliness issues, but one of the people that it really affects is Mary Boleyn because her husband, William Carey, is actually going to die uh, during this bout of the sweating sickness. And this is really dramatic because we're still in a time period where all of those lovely annuities and lands and grants that are given to the husbands, they revert back to the crown. And It becomes an issue in a couple of different ways. Mary has nowhere to live. She has no money. She's got two children. And this is where we see the traditional practice of what we call wardship. So she doesn't have the money to support her son, Henry, anymore. And because he's a boy and because Anne is now in this relationship with Henry VIII, maybe engaged to him, Uh, Anne becomes the most stable member of the Bolin family. And so little Henry becomes a ward of Anne Boleyn. And this is pretty traditional. You know, families have to take care of each other. And this is just one of those structures that's set up to make sure that kids get educated and um, get to be at court if they should be there and things like that. But um, Mary still has to take care of Catherine. And the big request, that's a really big deal. She needs somewhere to live. And she goes to her father, Thomas Boleyn, and says, can we stay with you? And in a really strange turn of events, he says, no, you cannot stay with me. Even though you've got this child, my grandchild, even though uh, our daughter, my other daughter is about to be queen of England, you can't stay here. So I'm not really sure what the falling out was there. Uh, But they had a really big one. And so this is where we see Mary really use some agency. And she goes to Anne, this sort of sisterly love, sisterly affection, please help me. She goes to Anne and requests that Henry demand that her father allow her to stay with him. Um, And he does. He steps in and he advocates for Mary and he makes Thomas Boleyn taken his daughter and his granddaughter. Of course, we don't have official records of this, but that response appears in a love letter between Anne and Henry. So we know that they're communicating about Mary in their love letters, and then Henry is willing to help Mary. So this is a really interesting moment where we see a lot of agency and a lot of favor. But of course, it's born out of this really sad moment where William Carey has died.
1: And then after that point, Mary disappears for a bit. And we don't hear from her again until 1534.
0: Yeah, she's off the record. I don't really know what happened there. We know she's with Thomas Boleyn, but she's laying low. Um, And then and then, of course, by 1534, like you said, when we see her again, she shows up at court and she is really pregnant, visibly pregnant. and. She's married, and and everybody's looking at her like, when did this happen? How dare you show up at court married and pregnant, especially when her sister is having trouble conceiving, and her her position is already in danger at English court. It was a, a big deal. Well, I don't know exactly what happened with that baby though, because there's no record of a, a new baby for Mary in 1534.
1: Which is kind of sad because she probably lost it more than likely.
0: Hmm. Yes. And it's especially sad because they made a point to say that she's visibly pregnant. So she's pretty far along. I had imagine that would have been uh, just very, very distressing.
1: Oh, the poor thing. She went through so much, didn't she?
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But the bright spot, right? is her new husband. Yes, that's one of my... Okay, one of my
1: favorite things about Mary Boleyn is when she married Stafford and then she wrote that letter to Cromwell and, you know, telling him about her love for him. I would love it if you could elaborate a little bit more on that letter.
0: Oh, it's such a great letter. And people read it like a great love letter, but there are a couple of other things that are really, really important in that letter. But to your point... She's been banished from court because obviously she got married without permission and that makes Harry or Henry, Henry and Anne very upset. So she's banished from court and she writes to Thomas Cromwell essentially asking for forgiveness. And then she gives us all these reasons why her new husband is so perfect. You know, she's in love with him. She trusts him. Um, She uses this phrase, you know, I was in bondage and now I'm at Liberty. So this idea that maybe she's coming out of a really oppressive situation, maybe with her father. um, And now she has a husband who loves her and lets her be herself. Oh, it's such a great letter.
1: I'm going to have to share that letter. I think um, when I when I share this podcast with everybody, because I think it deserves to be read and reread. Mm. Every time I read it, it just moves me.
0: Now, do you ever notice when you read it, not once in that letter does she say that she's sorry?
1: Oh, that's a good point. I don't think I noticed that.
0: She asks for mercy, she asks for forgiveness. She says, Yes, we did it and we shouldn't have. But at no point in that letter does she say that she's sorry.
1: <laughs> Good for her.
0: <laughs> I love that. Can you imagine? Um And of course, the language is really important, too. I think Um, I gave a a conference paper um, in London last year all about the language of this letter. Um, And like I said, she's using words like bondage and liberty. And when we look at some of the early translations of the Bible, um, those are words that really pop up a lot in the Protestant Bible and in, in literature that has to do with the Reformation. And it's peppered all throughout. So we see not just evidence of her agency, this great love story. Finally, she's happy. But we also see evidence of um, the way that she thinks. And it includes a lot of reform language.
1: I keep saying this. She just she fascinates me. Her story fascinates me her and Anne I feel like they were so similar in so many ways and you said you know Mary was happy at this time her sister Anne if we turn our attention back to her a little bit you know in 1534 she's now married to King Henry she has a daughter Elizabeth and as time continues in her marriage with Henry Henry starts becoming distracted Let's Mm. say, Um, and and that's the best way for me to to put it.
0: To put it (laughs) nicely,
1: (laughs) do do you think that Henry's relationship with Jane Seymour is what caused Anne's downfall, or do you think it was something else?
0: Oh gosh, oh that's a tough one. I mean, I mean, certainly yes. There has to be a percentage in there where Jane Seymour is part of. She's maybe a catalyst. The thing about Jane Seymour too, you know, I don't think she's as meek and mild as history writes her. I think she was prepped. I think she was trained. I think she took a page out of Anne Boleyn's book and ran with it. So I think she knew exactly what she was doing and she had already seen Anne do it. So she knew the method, right? Um, and of course, by this time Henry is nervous again about having sons, so it's kind of the perfect moment for Jane. So yes, I think that she she is definitely a part of this, um, but I also really like thinking about the theory that maybe Henry's jousting accident was was kind of the thing that flipped a switch in his brain. Maybe there was some damage there because we go from like January of 1536 and everything's okay and they're still trying for babies to Anna's executed by May of 1536. Um, and it just feels so fast. You know, like what if there was a physical thing there?
1: You know, I I often wonder too about that jousting accident. And I think I think sometimes more of it as um, Henry had a realization of how precious life was and that he could be gone tomorrow and he still didn't have his legacy.
0: Mm, So you're going with the existential crisis, right? Right. It it just Uh, seems typical Henry to me. It really does. He's very, he's an impulsive guy. We can't deny that. And he loves, you know, a young, beautiful woman. (laughs) He can't resist. Yeah, I think that's a really good interpretation of that, too. I don't know that we can ever know, but I think those are all really relevant theories. Um, But sure, Jane is definitely going to play a part in this.
1: Yeah, I definitely don't think she was as innocent as... Or, or, you know, people make her seem like she just stumbled upon this and she had no choice. I've always kind of believed, too, that maybe Jane did use Anne's method, but she revised it because she saw how it didn't work for Anne.
0: Yeah, right. She she was able to kind of observe the whole arc of that story and say, oh, that's where it went wrong. Let's not do that. <laughs> right. And it, and
1: it turned out in her
0: favor in the yeah. end. And if you look at it, if you think about Jane, like close your eyes and imagine you're Jane Seymour for a second. Would you really marry a man who had just beheaded his wife 10 days earlier if you hadn't been prepared for that all along? Exactly. Well, exactly. Uh, you know,
1: <laughs> and she had seen what happened to Catherine of Aragon as well.
0: Oh, uh, Yeah. Oh, poor Catherine, I heard that. I know,
1: that's a whole nother podcast, right?
0: <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> so when
1: Anne's downfall is happening, I've always wondered where Mary was during this time. Do you
0: have any idea where she was? I really don't. I, I think pretty definitively we've been able to determine she is not at the execution. Um, I don't know where she is. She's married. She's maybe had a baby. Uh, you know, maybe she has the baby and then, you know, it grows up a little bit and then dies from something else. We don't, we don't know. Um, But she's not living at court. She's living away from court. And I think at this point, things are looking up for Mary and I think she's removed herself, which is smart. It makes a lot of sense. Um, But yeah, I don't think she would have I don't think she would have been there for the execution of her brother or her sister.
1: I think we can safely assume she knew about their downfall.
0: Yes. Well, this would have been the hot gossip for Mm -hmm. sure. Um, There are no letters to her telling her about this, this particular downfall or asking her to come back to court. That doesn't mean they didn't exist. It just means we don't have them now. Um. So I, I don't even know what the motivation would be for her to stay away other than she's been gone for a few years and she just, it's not her place.
1: And maybe she didn't want King Henry to see another Berlin woman, you know, somebody he had had a relationship with. Maybe that would turn out badly for her.
0: Right. Yes. Maybe she's just like, oh, you know what? I can keep my head if I keep my distance.
1: Right. Right. Out of sight, out of mind type of a thing.
0: Absolutely. <laughs>
1: So we know that Anne was given a trial, unlike Catherine Howard and Thomas Seymour. Do you believe that her trial was just for show or do you think that her fate was already determined at that point?
0: Yeah, I think the trial is for show, but the show isn't really about Anne. I think the show is about Henry because he gave Catherine this really long trial with all these witnesses and this process of the Pope and all of these things. Um, but Anne's downfall is within four months, three, three, maybe. And, um, you know, he's pretty determined to have an expedited process. So I think he gives her this trial because he's already set a precedent for giving a trial to his wives. I think he just kind of has to do it. Um, But, you know, we know he calls people to the stand and we know that there's all these speeches and they're skewed in favor of the king. So I really don't think it was a real trial.
1: She didn't stand a chance.
0: No, I don't think so. If we go back a
1: little, I was just thinking about something else too. Um, Prior to her being arrested and everything, um, we often hear the story about Anne pleading to Henry at Greenwich, I think it was, with Elizabeth in her arms. Many believe this to be true, but in fact, I believe Elizabeth wasn't even there at the time.
0: Yeah, there's a really interesting movement um, after Anne's death. uh, And I guess... Well, there's like revisionist history that starts coming out in like 1538, and it lasts for a couple of years. And everyone's trying to kind of revise the public image of Anne Boleyn and actually of Mary Boleyn, too. And I think this story kind of comes out because they're painting her not just as, you know, a fallen queen, but they're trying to humanize her a bit. You know, she was a mother, She was a wife. And even better, she's a Protestant martyr. So I think that this is part of the revisionist history cycle. I'm sure someone wrote about it. But if the documents don't place Elizabeth at court at that time, then this story didn't happen
1: and And one of the things about Anne is I feel like she's always known as the one who brought the Protestant religion to England, yeah um, but but really she she helped maybe guide Henry, I don't know this for certain, but guide him toward reformed religion, not necessarily mm-hmm. Protestant as we know it, but do you know what Mary's view
0: on religion was? Yeah, Mary's absolutely um on board with the reformed religion. We have to think about where Anne and Mary spent a lot of their formative years, and that's in France. And French court has yeah. women like Queen Claude and Marguerite d'Angoulême, who becomes Queen of Navarre. And those two, two women in particular are also going to be supporting reformed thought. Again, not Protestantism but reforming the church as a necessity. So Anne and Mary are both growing up around these women who throw these ideas around at least as early as 1517, 1518. Um, And then they bring it back to English court. So they're definitely on board with reforming the church. I think Mary doesn't go as far as saying that everyone should be Protestant But she and her first husband, William Carey, uh, do petition for some some nuns to be elevated into the role of, you know, an abbess at this nunnery. Um, And these are more reformed thinking women that they're advocating for. At the time, Henry says no. But by the time we see Anne coming in, then Anne gets to start advocating for more reformed leaders, and he's going to approve those. So I think Mary is is early. She's She's giving him some ideas. She's giving him some opportunities. But Anne is the one who's going to be able to really solidify the switch. Was Mary still alive during the reign of Queen Mary? Mary was... Let's see. Mary died in 1543. So no, 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 No. she
1: wasn't. Okay. My question of course was going to be similar to, um, I believe it was, was it Catherine Carey or am I thinking of the Newell's family when, when Mary came to the throne and Mm. was pushing the Catherine and how they had fled. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, there, that's a really great, um, tidbit, I think a lot of people forget that there's this mass exodus of people who leave England and go to France when Catholic Mary comes to the throne. Um, One of the people, uh, Anne's cousin, Mary Howard, whom also married um, Henry Fitzroy, the Mm -hmm. king's illegitimate son. So Mary Howard Fitzroy, she is definitely Protestant. She's definitely all about the break from the Catholic Church, which is interesting because the Howards are pretty traditionally Catholic. Right. Um, But Mary Howard, Anne's cousin, is going to be advocating um, for Protestant reform. And then she's going to be patronizing big, big time Protestant authors like John Fox, supporting them when they flee um, under Mary and then supporting them and publishing their works when they return under Elizabeth the first. So the Howards are a big part of this too.
1: (laughs) I I can't imagine what it would have been like to live during that time. And especially to be a woman during Mm -hmm. that time. It seems unimaginable to me.
0: I I agree. Just the stress.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And and you know, Yeah, and we're, we're, you know, today we're talking about the execution of Anne Boleyn and it's such a a sad day to remember, you know, we look at her, her final speech and, and just the aftermath of her execution and how maybe it seemed like it didn't take as long as maybe we suspect that people realize that she wasn't guilty.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, there. well, and I think there are a couple of things too. Again, we have to credit Anne with so much because court culture shifted immensely while she was queen and even at the end of her time as sort of, you know, the girlfriend. Um, I mean, we have all these really creative, beautiful manuscripts. There's sort of like this... Think of it as being a middle school, you have like a spiral notebook and you write something in it, and then you pass it to the next person and they write something in it. Um, and that's kind of what's happening at Anne's Court. We call it the Devonshire manuscripts, and it's got, you know, entries from Thomas Wyatt and George Boleyn and Mary Howard Fitzroy. And they're writing these poems about being at court, life at court. And it is It's incredible. So I think this is a weird moment where Anne is going to change court culture and women are going to have a lot, a bigger voice, a lot more agency uh, and Protestant reform um, gives women a bigger voice as well. But she falls so quickly. That when we see the Devonshire manuscript later, the entries after her death, and that you think about, you know, the revisionist history of John Fox and Cardinal Pohl and all of those things. People are still talking about Anne, you know, two, four, six years after her death. I think you're right. I think people were really clear that she was innocent by that point.
1: Christine, Thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking to me about the Boleyn sisters.
0: Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.